0: You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Five, four, three, two, and one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're out here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, functional fitness, how to train, run, feel great in your body all the time. And we're joined today by the one, the only, the barefoot sprinter, Graham Tuttle, who is a coach that has been constantly working on building better athletes by fixing pain. His major program is a foot fix process called Ready to Run, which restores functional feet. He mainly focuses on developing better fascial strength and integrity in the body for an athletic foundation. That's what we're all about on this podcast. And he's working on a similar process for the hands and pelvic floor as well. Really excited to talk to you about that. Apart from that, he also went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill for a degree in exercise and sports science and has been working as a coach for almost 10 years. Graham, thanks so much for jumping on with us. You're exactly what we're all about on this podcast, and we're really, really stoked to talk to you.
1: Well, it, it, there's nothing but uh, pride I feel as I get to listen to the um, the uh, the read off of my accolade. So, thank you for such a glowing <laughs> introduction.
0: Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've listened to much of our podcast, but we have like about ten episodes about the feet alone. We're probably mm-hmm. the the closest thing to a biomechanical foot fetish podcast that you can find online right now and you know where your main program focuses on developing foot strength you are the barefoot sprinter um how did you kind of come into this work how did you start focusing on foot strength when did you realize it was so important
1: so this is uh um, like I had a little bit of a history of injuries um you know it's interesting because I think about this a lot I feel like I get injured a lot and I don't know if it was just me in a sense. So like I've had uh, like I had a bad ankle sprain that turned into like plantar fasciitis and turf toe and shin splints. And sometimes I do wonder because like there are certain categories of like injuries, right? So like you have a shoulder dislocation or like a joint. And obviously I see the skeleton behind behind William over there that it's like, OK, like there are big musculoskeletal things like you tear a bone, or you break a bone, you tear a ligament stuff. But then there's all kinds of other things that just happen. Like you get these things. So like for me, it was just this process of like. Learning and exploring my body in that sense, so I had all these just constant soft tissue injuries that are happening after a major musculoskeletal injury. So for me, it was an ankle sprain that kind of turned in and basically turned into a, a long, just this like chain of injuries up the body. So like knee pain and hip pain, uh, turned the shoulder dislocation just because my my posture was off. And so you know, I, I don't know whether or not I get injured more than the average person, but in some senses, I just paid more attention to it, and so. In this process, so I grew up, I was pretty average kid, had no real athletic skill. And actually, the, the thing that I, I probably set me on this path more than anything else is I, I had very poor eyesight when I was young. I don't know if you wear glasses or contacts, but um, mm-hmm. so when you wear really thick glasses, you don't develop peripheral vision, so you don't develop anything to the side of your eyes. And so, even I was at the, my gym yesterday, and one of my clients is like a younger girl, and she's like throwing the ball at me, and I'm like flinching, and she's like, Why do you flinch so much? I'm like, You don't understand my. Proprioception, all that stuff, just didn't develop in the same way. So I've like I'm working on this stuff now. But as part of that, I was never very athletic, and so I got to the point where I wanted to be stronger and faster because I was I just did track and cross country as, as a kid growing up, and so I was familiar with running. Um, but as part of that, amazingly, even though you do cross country, they do not teach you how to run. So I just kind of. Plotted along in my thick ASICs and just did whatever and, you know, pretty resilient as a kid, never really had many injuries until I went to college and that's when I had my bad ankle sprain, had my first shoulder dislocation, I, had my, I threw my back out, like all kinds of things happened in that first two years. I think partly it was like, you know, you're growing up, you're hitting puberty, you're putting on some more muscle mass, you're doing different things. I was training more like a meathead and so you know there was, which is fine because when you train like a meathead in the gym you can just do the machines and kind of get around some of these pains or weaknesses or you may not be aware of that stuff but i i unfortunately or fortunately had aspirations of being more athletic and so i wanted to go i got the opportunity to go work at a place that uh, coached athletes pretty much right out of college and i worked as a coach which i had no business teaching people how to run or sprint or jump because i didn't know how to do it but the benefit was that i got to go and train people myself so i got to go and like be the co i gotta go do the classes with these athletes and so i started with the high schoolers and went to the college kids and like training with the college kids and kind of learn how to spread how to run do this stuff right and so at that point what I, what i realized is like oh my body's not ready for this like i always had hip flexor strains my knees like it just nothing was ready like i was i was weak and stiff I, it's funny because i'd go back and look at videos of me that i have from running from seven eight years ago and i'm like a block of meat. It's just like my head doesn't move, my arms are stiff, and I'm just like trying to sprint really bad. And so it's like, no, I'm surprised people didn't laugh at me more. But um, so through that process, though, I was like, okay, I want to be able to do this stuff. Like, I want to have, I want to be able to roll, and I want to play, I want to sprint, I want to be athletic, but like, my body is not letting me do that. And so it was this process, like, what do I need to do? So I started like, well, maybe if I ran more, it'd be good. So I got back into running a little bit, because it'd been familiar. And I'd been working on sprinting. And you know, I go out and I'm like, oh, let's go for a run. And then all of a sudden, my shin splints are killing me. Like, it's just horrible. I'm like, where did this come from? And I changed my shoes. And I'm like, well, I got turf toe. And I got plantar fasciitis. I'm like, well, where did this come from? And so we ended up one day having, I had somebody videotape me. And I'm walking. And it just looked like Donald Duck. My feet are out of the side. They're asymmetrical. My hips are swinging. I'm like, this does not look good. Like, no one's told me this before. It's like, you know when you have a booger and you have, you go over something in your teeth? and am like, you go through <laughs> the whole day and no one tells you that. <laughs> I thought you were my friend and you let me go out like this. So from that process, it was just like, it was, I I was just like, okay, well, no one told me this, so I'm going to have to do this. So I figured like, well, what's going on? And so at that point, you know, I remember being there at the gym and I rolling my calves out and my calves are just so tight. It was like painful. It was terribly painful to the touch. I was like, well, what's going on? Because the thing is, no one tells you to think about your toes and your feet at all. It's like with your hands if we're working on grip if you've done any type of like lifting and stuff like that you say okay well i want to grip and hanging and this things you would engage your fingers so it's a little more intuitive but no one tells you to think about your 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 toes at all I'm like well i can't even move my toes and so from that process it would just kind of set off a light bulb like okay well what does this look like because i don't think one arch should be collapsed and i kind of realized that like after that bad ankle sprain the physical therapy i did was not sufficient like they just didn't even take my shoes off i just did some calf raises i remember being like a month or two out of physical therapy and I just like went out on the turf field with my buddy and he threw me a football. And I'm like, kind of gently doing some cuts left to right. I'm like, I guess I'm okay. Like, you know, there was no, none of this like dynamic, get you back. I was like, I, I guess I'm okay. And so that process was like, you know, four or five, six years ago, but kind of accepting, like, I don't think I should feel this beat up and broken at age of 22 or 23. And so, over that time, you know, it was like a, a three steps forward, one step back where like I figure something out and then I get hurt again because it's like you're loading new tissue with old patterns. And so I get to that point, And that's when I really started to dig into understand things like fascia and the connective tissue and how the actual musculoskeletal system works and how the body flows together because I'd taken so many anatomy and physiology classes in school. So I had a decent mental math, but I was always, I also have no, no reputation to protect. Like I'm not a uh, a professional physical therapist or doctor. So I didn't have to go and like use the stuff I paid a bunch of money to go and learn. So I was like ask <laughs> different questions and just think broadly. And so at that point, like it got to the the process of saying, Okay, I'm I'm starting to fix some of these things and I'm able to go and run. And it just felt really good to go run. So I'm out in the turf field because I live near the college campus here. They got these massive turf fields. And then it just, you know, it was like I had a buddy videotape me running and it kind of took off. And so he kind of leaned into that and I made him I got like gimbal, made him run right beside me, and so that got a little bit bigger. And it's like, you know, I had Keegan Smith, and we've talked about just um, or Keegan Smith. I should just give more credit to he's the, the brains behind the whole operation. He's just a brilliant guy. And so he was like, you know, that thing you do where you rub barefoot is like really unique, and like that would break my feet. And most most athletes would never go do that. It's just like the barefoot sprinter, he got through this out there. It was like six or seven months ago, and I was like, yeah, 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 it sounds gimmicky. But I was then I kind of thought about it more and more of like. Well that's the message I want to get across which is like your body is strong and resilient and if you just do the right training it will perform for you. And so for me being able to change my body and change my life it was like yeah that's what I want people to know. So even on the foot guy now it's like there's a lot of things ultimately I just want people to have confidence back in their body. And so me being able to go and like sprint and run barefoot I don't like advocate everyone goes around barefoot all the time but it's like your body can do it and I think that's amazing. So does that all make sense?
0: Totally. Yeah, it makes tons of sense, and you know we're we're big foot foot nerds ourselves, and we talk a lot about the importance of the foot, and and we, you know like I, I think I mentioned we have probably around ten episodes just dedicated to looking at the foot, <laughs> you know whether that's with other guests or just ourselves like pulling up images and talking about the structure and how we transfer mm-hmm. force and the fascial structures and like we're, we're 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 big foot nerds. I mean we you know you're kind of preaching to the choir in terms of the importance of having control awareness structural integrity. Special integrity of the foot. Now, from your perspective, what are some of the inputs that people have in daily life, in modern life, that kind of lead to a lack of foot strength, a lack of foot integrity? How are are people kind of sabotaging or, or damaging even their feet?
1: So, well, I, the low hanging fruit here is that they're wearing shoes in a sense. And so the, the equivalent I said, if you had an oven knit all the time that you wore, that kind of kept your fingers together, you'd probably lose that. Or the very clear analogy is if you've ever broken a wrist or fractured anything in your hand, you put it in a cast. It's like very quick that you lose your dexterity, your coordination, your strength. And even you can look. So what I find is interesting, and I don't know what will make sense to the visual. But if you look at my hands, I do so much with my right hand that it's like you could see the meat and the strength that's just not there in the left hand. Like there's a legitimate 10% size difference on my hands. And so what, what I think is very fascinating from that is like a visceral uh, or like a very visual analogy for people is that whatever you do with your body, your body will adapt to that. So the stresses you put on it make it more resilient for that stress. So the other side of that is the stresses you take away from that make it less resilient. So Everything from the thousands of nerve endings at the bottom of the feet that otherwise are able to orient you based off of your, the texture of the ground, the temperature of the ground, the uh, or the, the, the degree of angle, whether it's firm, whether it's soft, like, there's you know, so many things that go on from that just feeling the ground is one side, the ability for your foot to form what's a, a short foot position So think about like a fist version to be able to punch the ground and hit the ground very, very powerfully when you're running and jumping. and it's amazing you start to look at some of these people like the Maasai tribe that can do those the video I'm sure you saw where they like the people in the red robes are just bouncing off the ground like thirty, forty, fifty inches. I don't know, fifty, but like they're they're just flying off the ground. Or you look at kangaroos that are just jumping. It's like we all come from the same carbon atoms in the sense that we're all designed to be able to do this stuff. But the question is like what happens along the way? A big part of it is when shoes, you know, kids from uh, your early age are getting shoved into the mini Air Jordans, and I know they're cute, and I know it's like everyone likes it, but you know it's essentially you look at Liz, one of my one of my teammates, um, his she had a, a kid, which is crazy to me that people can make people. Like I'm just I can't get over that. I don't know if you have kids or not, but like people can make people, like people make people, like women make people. It just blows my mind that you can make a person. You were made, and we're all made. Yeah? Like a mom made us. Crazy. But you look at this little baby, it pops out of the womb, and it's like their little toes. It just it's like they're, they're wiggling, they're moving, they're spread out, and it's like pressing in the middle. They clench down. and It's so cute. I got really bad baby fever after she walked in and handed me this thing, and I was like, look at the toes. They're so cute. Look at the hair. It's just, it's just me, a person. But the point of that is that like, you look at the capacity we have, and we either are allowing that to naturally work, which is the crazy thing I think about it. Because if you look at the body, people have this idea that like arches, I've got flat feet, I've got bad feet, I've got bad ankles, I don't have arches that did form. But no kid has arches, they don't even have bones. It's like so you form under the stress and it starts, are you crawling, are you standing, are you walking? And the body is amazing to do that stuff. So when we take away the feedback that would otherwise stimulate that, we end up getting to a point where it's like, you know, we lose the actual capacity for our body to integrate and to move and to balance and to you know be with the world. And so then we get weaker. And then of course when we get weaker, we have this is the analogy I always uh, look at. Like so people talk about how people like we're foot nerds in a sense We we get it, we care, right? But people that don't I, I don't I have never been really had never had it explained to them it's not always intuitive why it matters, right? Because it's, well, I'm not going to not wear shoes. I'm not going to go and be barefoot. So they're like, well, what's the point? Why does it matter? Well, when you can help them see like, well, your feet impact everything up the chain, that kind of makes it a little bit more real. So it's like, this is where I think the disconnect is. And if I've had success with anything, it's just telling a better story for, you look at people that are brilliant physical therapists, brilliant chiropractors, brilliant like medical professionals. And there are brilliant coaches out there that really encourage. And like, there's nothing I'm saying is new. But the people that are out there saying this stuff, is like, well, what, where, where are they missing? Where is it not connecting? It's, well, your feet matter so that you can do. And the people care, people in general care about the so that you can part. They don't care about the feet matter part. So it's mm-hmm. saying in the same sense of like, you look at all, like people get it in a sense where like their calves are tight, their your ankles are stiff. You look at your forearm and say, okay, I have all these muscles in the forearm that move. And maybe it's not clear with my 720 HD camera, but um, oh, you can see, you see all these muscles in your you forearm. Good. So if I were more jacked, you could see it better. But you um, <laughs> know, which I was out with Marcus Philly like uh, two or three weeks ago. The man has not an ounce of fat in his body. He's like moving, and I'm like, oh my god, you like every muscle major, um, yeah. I know, yeah. It's like, and I'm sure you, you geek out on that stuff. You meet him, like, oh, I can see all your muscles, and it's like, wait, we're hold off, bro. But you, you see that, and it's like, okay, so we have all these muscles in my form that only move if I can engage them with the the proprioceptive cueing of my. So if I can grab things, if I can pull, if I can move these joints. So if I can't move the joints of my fingers or my wrist, I have no ability to access the muscle in my form. And so when in doubt, the body will always create stability. So it's going to go with stability over mobility in a sense, because it wants to create security where we're very security driven creatures. Um, And so the same thing happens with the feet. If I can't move and engage and wiggle my toes, all the muscles in my calf, my lower leg, and that whole uh, 360 degree complex down there, it doesn't move. And then you get stiff. And when you get stiff, that takes away the, the, the springy, uh, the, the foot, ankle, lower leg spring complex that would otherwise absorb force for the knee. And then you get knee pain. And so what I think is interesting is like, at this point, I don't really even talk about the knee very much because like we don't talk about, obviously, the different joints, but we don't talk much about the elbow or training the elbow. We think about the hand and fist and hand wrist and the shoulder and the scapula. So we think above and below. So that's when I started to realize more and more that almost all the problems people have when it comes to like their knees are, well, the knees are going where the feet take them and what the hips allow. And so being able to start to unpack some of these things, and like, well, what's happening with the feet? Where are the feet going? Can you move the toes? Can we create stability? Can you rebuild these, these, uh, the arch and the structures underneath that? That was the first thing that really set me on this path of like, huh, maybe there's something else here. So that's really what I think <laughs> to answer your question broadly. I can it's impossible for me to do a short answer question The answer to your question probably <laughs> the thing is that people are so disconnected from their feet that they are essentially walking around with their feet balled up into a fist so to speak i wouldn't even say a fist probably just like your hands together uh, like will smith how gonna smack somebody um, you know it's like they're walking around like that all the time and they're like well i don't know why my wrist or my my body feels stiff and tight it's like, yeah, because you're not even orienting and relaxing in the ground and so the end of the fascial chain or the beginning of the fascial chain is completely stiff
2: so how do you approach um, unstiffening that? Where do you start with the foot on a regular person? Um, is it the toes? Is it the midfoot? Is it the arches? How do you start?
1: The, so I've kind of codified like a five step process that, that's that been effective for me. Um, the first step is just very simple. So, uh, you know, toe spreaders are all the rage now the like the plastic you shove between your toes and I'm sure you're familiar with those. Um, i've i've actually never done never used them like i've, I've tried them on when companies company sent them to me um but i've never actually used them in a sense because i just have found that they are they they do a job but i'm not quite convinced that they're that different from orthotics in a sense that they go for the aesthetic as opposed to the function and so the yeah. first step of this process is, is is called uh the hand foot glove in a sense so this is it's just basically differentiating the toes. So simply where you just take your fingers and you work them through the toes. And so a lot of people, if they're stiff, they have bunions, and they, they may only be able to do one foot the a time, and they may need to use some uh, baby oil or lotion to get in there. But essentially, you were just taking – And so feel free to do this while you're listening. The, uh, you're essentially working your fingers in between your toes in some sense. And so it's painful at first. It does not feel good. There we go. Uh, exactly. Now, there's a few things there's that happen
0: here. Have you done it before? Have you ever tried that? Like not not to this degree, no. It's very. Yeah, I actually
2: give it to some patients.
0: Yeah. So, and there's a there's a few things I think
1: that are important about this that I don't think people qualify. So, the toe spacers are good because they spread your toes out. But just as you know, if I had something that spread my, I did a hand spacer. Like there's an aesthetic of how the hand and the fingers work, and there's an aesthetic of how the toes work. But then there's the function. So I want to be able to make shapes with my fingers. You know, I want to be able to move and engage that. So that's one part. So when people just wear toe spacers for hours on end, it's like, well, now you're just kind of creating a passive stretch on the ligaments without any type of active engagement with the rest of the muscle. Two, there's a proprioceptive feedback. So Proprioception is basically your ability to have tactile feedback. So if you think about when like, if you put your shirt on, you have an itchy tag, you can feel that right. Or even worse, because I shave my head like once a week. Because I'm not, you know, I don't have as much hair up there as I'd like. You know, we can all be well. but
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, we you understand, you know, Williams, whatever. But um, the. <laughs> there's when you you cut your hair and you put a shirt on it's like itchy itchy and it's the worst but eventually you stop paying attention to that or if someone scares you you don't think about it anymore right so but there's something about the proprioceptive feedback so there's something called the cortical homunculus which i just think it's fascinating it's it's if you ever see it's the brain and it's the parts of the brain i think it's the the the, the cortex i forget what it's called the uh the part of the brain that maps to sensory engagement in the body. So when I can feel my fingertips, my face, my tongue, lips, mouth, my feet, my skin, and there's like parts of the body that are more sensitive than others, right? We kind of get that, right? Um, So within that, we have the ability to feel. And so one of the things I think is fascinating is if you look at little babies, you look at kids, they're constant, they're like sensory, sensorially adapted to this. They they look at everything. And so they're always wide-eyed. You are going to look at it, go back to the baby. It's like, they're looking at you wide-eyed, like staring at you. They reach out, and they want to touch you, and then they want to like put you in your mouth, which I think is fascinating. I mean, I've heard people that, that the reason that people kiss is because it's like, a risk assurance. So like, I'm going to share my saliva with you, so I'm sick. You're taking a risk with me. But I also think there's another side of like, why people kiss and do things. is like they reach out, they want to touch something, and they feel it. And ultimately, they're trying to figure out, is this okay to eat? And so then they're like, they touch it and then like feeling it. And so the way we get to know something like intuitively is to like put it in our mouth or to chew it or to bite it. You know, it's like there's something about that tactile feedback that is our ability to explore the world around us. So when it comes to that, these are the things I think about. You um, in the handbook glove, like the fingers are such a vital part of getting in and feeling your toes because it's not just enough for your toes to spread. You want to re-engage the sensorial capacity of your foot. You want to have, you want to feel. And so essentially you can use your fingertips as a way to feel and know the world around you. So there's this knowing sense. So if I want to feel, understand, well, what is a book? It's like the idea of like the map is not the territory, right? You you ever heard that phrase before? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can look at it, but to go and say, what does it look like to be in the Canadian Rockies? What does it look like to be in California, wherever it is? What does it look like to know what a humerus is on the body it's like well this partly is like i can intellectually have a mental map here but that's not the thing is part of it is the feeling can i feel the dirt can i you know feel the air can i breathe in and taste and smell and so like to adapt our senses to that environment is a big part of it so the same thing with our feet and our body is part this is why i think human touch is so valuable i think most people are not touched nearly enough and so it's interesting because i don't have kids but i do think about like the western style of parenting which is like you know, there's distance. Or so even if people are carrying kids, they're rarely on. After the you know the first day, they're usually wrapped up. Kids' their skin is covered up all the time. The feet are covered up all the time. They're if they even if they're not like, even if they're with you, they're you know they're, they're you have separation between your skin and their skin. They're always bundled up. They're wearing clothing. They're you know in the little like carriers or the strollers. And it's like, I don't think people get enough touch. And so part of this is like, okay, what does it look like to touch? as a way of knowing and learning. And so when it comes to the feet, when we lose all the sensory input from the feet, part of that is just getting getting that back. So just like you would go outside if you've been inside all day and it's a dark room and your eyes like it, you hit the sunlight and it's so bright, that's a lot of what it is for the feet. And so they go out and they feel, everything feels harsh. It feels sharp. It feels painful. It feels overwhelming. So part of that is just in a very safe, very simple thing is like just to take those fingers and rediscover your feet. That's the first step. So that that's a fundamental, the hand foot glove, if you wanted the 20 minute reason why, the hand, the hand foot glove is like <laughs> the thing to just start with. And so that's where like, take five minutes, take a minute a day and just work in there. And you'll be amazed at how much better you'll get in the span of a few days as you do that. It make sense? 100%. And then the next, this is the, just cause it's there. The next part of that is what I call the big toe thumbs up. So this is a pretty fundamental thing. So your thumbs up position is a pretty fundamental position. So. Uh, your four fingers are flexed and your thumb is extended the same thing that happened with your feet so most people lose the capacity to do this or they, they've lost the capacity so what i do is you take your hand you take one hand you pull the finger and the toes down you take the other hand and pull the big toe apart so you can kind of use that toe like a joystick and then work it around and so that's differentiating the big toe so we think about this the finger spread but also the thumb functions independently and now this is where people who have bunions is it's no foot would have bunions without shoes the, Like shoes are the only reason for bunions. and eventually you get the laxity of that shoe caving in and pulling that big toe in. So you get laxity in the ligaments on the outside of that foot but fundamentally bunions are from dysfunctional feet. So now while you're trying that, the next step is, okay, I can do this and get the position, but can I hold that? This is where you're going to feel some cramping. So if I pull those toes down and pull the big toe apart and then let go, keep the big, uh, big toe apart. And then let go of those toes. If I can continue to flex and get as tight to this position as possible, you're going to feel some cramping in those toes. You, you might not, because you, you're two or strong, handsome gentlemen. But you know, it's one of those amazing things of like fundamentally, what are the shapes you should make? And the big toes there. Now, what's interesting is if you put your feet together and you try to do that big toe, so you flex your your you flex your toes, your big toe will get pulled in. And now you would think if I did this and if I squeezed my fingers and my thumbs pulled in because they were stiff, that would be a problem, right? If I couldn't move my fingers independently from my thumb. And again, this is not so that you can go and play the piano with the toes, but it's saying the big toe is the single biggest engager of glute flexion. So if I can't push through the ground with a big toe, if I can't balance then things like a Patrick step, a jump, a land, a single leg RDL, sprinting, are all prohibited because I can't engage my glutes and then my hamstrings get tight. So being able to pull, and the cool thing about this is that, even though our fingers are longer than our toes, there's still the fundamentally the same tissue same bone structure same uh, inner inner and the metacarpals in your hands the metatarsals in your feet, but there's still tissue in between these bones. And so if you look at that, the ability for this foot to form a dome to cup is integral to its ability to engage with the world around us to grip and such same thing with the foot. So if we can't dome with the foot, then we can't create the rigid, rigidity when we want to strike the ground. So we strike and hit a trampoline thing, we hit the ground pop back up, that's that pop when a hip pop back up. But if we can't get that pliable movement, because the foot is stiff, and we are only walking on pristine two dimensional ground, then all of a sudden, when we do it, goes sideways, the ankle goes, the ligament goes, the, the retinaculum goes, the, the connective tissue goes. But what's cool is that you have tissue in between these bones, that you know, I used to have this uh, uncle, I, I I think he's still alive. Uh, I'm, you know, that's how my brain doesn't work There, family stuff. But like, he would grab my hand, do the handshake and then he grabbed that bottom knuckle, the pinky knuckle. So like you do a handshake and he grabbed that knuckle right under the pinky and just pull in and then wiggle back and forth. It was so painful. It was like, Dick Oh move. God, that was the worst. <laughs> I know. I'd know. always, we'd call him evil uncle Eric. Cause he would just like do that. i like, no, leave me alone. And I'm like, Hey, for the big eye, big glasses and big head. So, um, you know, so that part is like, okay, we have this tissue between our toes and our, between our feet that gets stiff. So when we go to this, Big toe thumbs up and we flex those toes, it's so stiff and tight. it's so obviously the skin is a little bit stiffer. You know, we people don't have any like they'll get they'll actually amazingly get like cuts in between their toes when you go to spread it out because they're not getting hydration in these tissues. It's a whole process of the feet get stuck. So just those two alone doing the hand foot glove and the big toe thumbs up, like those are like mm-hmm. manual things you could do. And this is just getting in the door, so then you can actually move your toes. And once you can move them, then you get stronger. When you get stronger, then you can start to load them with actual plyometric development. And then that's when you can really remodel the fascia and integrate to the rest of the body.
0: So first of all, that was, that was a lot. There was one point that you made there in particular that, that really, really fascinated me because we've had so many discussions. Um, we're kind of notorious for starting debates about the big toe. We've had many, many guests with different Ideas, and I wanted to talk about this idea of the big toe being a driver of glute engagement. Um, both of us have had David Weck on quite a few times. So he was a big proponent of mm. big, big toe training for you know optimizing the flexor hallucis longus. Um, I myself, you know, did a lot of the, the ATG system has like all those long range um, toe raise stuff. That that was Ben's sort of idea was like if you're doing these long range toe raises. You're training with flexor hallucis longus, um, and then a lot of go-to coaches that we've had on are are really really big proponents of not funneling the weight off into the big toe during the gait cycle, and I found that really interesting. And in terms of glute activation, you know, I've played with a lot of different loading patterns and you know funneling weight into my foot, and you know their model doesn't have a lot of big toe pressure down during the gait cycle but I still feel quite a bit of glute engagement so I'd love to learn a little bit more about the the structural side of of what like why is the the big toe how how is that connect how is the big toe connected to the glute I guess for our listeners and how can big toe training kind of optimize your glute engagement especially during the gait cycle in something like a sprint
1: that great questions um and first off I I just I'm tickled pink that I have anything to add to this conversation because you just mentioned some really smart guys so um, I, And again, I reserve my right to be wrong. What do I know? I'm just an average meathead. So these are just things I'm asking questions. But um, one of the things there's two parts is kind of like fetishizing the anatomy and physiology part, which is like this looks exactly like you look at the bone behind you. I think some people will sit around the ivory tower and think exactly this is how it should work. It's like in reality, people are messy in a sense. And I think that there's the idea of like, you know, there's probably no perfect way to do this because you look at the transition. So. Humans, like, for all we know, the, the best models say that we came from monkeys, and so monkeys, you know, weren't sprinting, there's not very many fast monkeys, right? Because the way that the foot would have, they would have had a foot that grabs and you start to see some of these Aboriginal people that like they still have a foot that goes out the side. So then there's a question of like, okay, if we are optimizing for sprinting, we're optimizing for a, a design that humans are not adequately really set for in a sense, we are elite throwers if you want to look at the things that we do better than anyone else in animal kingdom it throws stuff it's build stuff it throws stuff and plan for the future so from that perspective it's like i think this is why there's so many different pro per perspectives on like how exactly to sprint and move i put up this instagram video of me running in slow motion and i i had a little clip of like what do you think i should do i had like uh, over a hundred people that were like, do this, do this, do this, and then like half of them say you look great, half of them say I can't believe you, you didn't even put this up, this is horrible. You know, everyone's a sprinting coach. So in some senses, I think what's probably more valuable than saying exactly this is how the big toe goes into the running form, I think it's probably more applicable for people to say this is what happens when the big toe can't move. Meaning, mm. it's it's so hard to do a counterfactual of this, of like. What does it look like to have healthy big toe, help healthy, healthy feet? Well, you show me someone who's never worn shoes and then let's look at them. But, you know, those are the things where like it's hard to find that because everybody we're looking at is saying, even for me, it's like I'm still doing work to get my toes and feet. And like I've spent I don't say more than any you know, because there's a lot of people who've done I, I'm just an average person just going through this stuff. But like I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and working with over a thousand clients at this point through the first few classes ready to run and like getting feedback and going through that. And even then when we do run it's like okay it's one thing to go run barefoot but then it's like okay how does that change when you're in shoes so there's so many variables here that it's very hard to say this is exactly what's happening so with the process i think the safest thing we look at is like even though it's hard to say exactly what happens with the big toe and i can walk down like how i think about it um what i would say is that it is very easy to say that when you wear shoes that pull the big toe in And then lose that, you lose the ability to set the foundation point for the medial longitudinal arch and the transverse arch. So, and it's not so much of the big toe. So that's like saying the tip of the thumb. How much do I want to have the tip of the thumb? Well, actually, you look at the real value is this metatarsal phalange joint, or metacarpal phalange joint in the thumb. So you look at the meat of there. If I'm gripping something, it's my ability to get in and do that. The toe wraps around. So I think this is another part is, are we talking about the actual big toe? Are we talking about that metatarsal phalange joint that engages and makes contact? Because that's where the transverse archer goes across the foot and the medial longitudinal arch, the one that people think of, that's where it intersects. And so if that's thrown off, then you get the laxity in the outside of the joint, the abductor halicus or the halicus abductor, whatever the Latin is, that's not activated. And so then you end up in a collapse. And so what I think is more detrimental for people is when they aren't even capable of using that because then you lose the ability for the foot to stabilize, the knees shift in. You get a loss of that fascial strength on the inside, posterior tibialis, and splints, the knee collapses in. You lose the ability for the hip flexors to rotate because if the knee is in abduction or adduction, meaning it's coming in, then you can't rotate that hip and you get into impingement. And so the hip flexors aren't working as well. So I think the thing that none of us would disagree on would be the fact that when the big toe is kept in captivity or isn't functional or is not even just able to move and flow freely you have a lot of the biggest problems we see. So loss of function comes from that. Now, my process and thought would be that, and I've heard there's two things. So one of which it makes sense of like, that the main point of contact is right at that second metatarsal. So that, that second toe where you make contact, you know, pop in the ground and it comes back up. So it's a doming thing where you hit the ground and pop back up. But also you'll notice that when people do run, there is a slight, so when the posterior tibialis engages there's a slight inversion of that foot. So right before I make foot contact with the ground, I have an engagement in the posterior tibialis that plantar flexes the foot, so it points it and then turns it in, so it kind of supinates the foot slightly, and then I've got a stretch on the fibularis and the peroneal muscles on the outside of the foot. Now, those are what form the lateral longitudinal arch, they come down run the, the outside of the foot, that outside of the shin, and so that was, you know, people get a bunny net when they don't have capacity there. So I would slightly, everybody slightly internally rotates their foot. And so that's part of this process Whereas I make contact and I pronate across, there is some pronation that happens, just a natural, that's a natural thing. When it happens on the heel, it's called overpronation because you're slamming across and then you're throwing the ankle inside. But as I'm landing correctly, if I were to run barefoot or minimalist shoes, which uh, maximizes the mechanics of the body, I would land on the outside. So there is... Whether or not there is a straight doming process where you hit straight down or there's a pronation, it seems to me from evidence of what I've seen personally and just working with people that there is some pronation. So now the fact that there is some pronation, which is an angular torque, it's a rotation around this axis. So as I make contact and the foot pronates, I am then turning because the whole body works in this rotational twist capacity. So that's the amazing thing. If I punch, I don't just punch, I rotate and punch, right? If I throw, I rotate as I throw. Shoulders of ball and socket. Even go to what say the ankles of ball and socket joint, which has some hinge capacity. So it's some of that may be nuanced. Um, they rotate, pronate. The whole process of moving is saying we're transitioning movement. So if I pro, road, I'm rotating across at some level, even if it's a little bit, which I think it's a lot less than people think about. When you have too much joint laxity, when you have too much tendon laxity, where I can't create stiffness, that's when you see people that they go and they're like running like giraffes and they can't really move but when you see the fastest people in the world they're rigid they're super stiff and i was with zach bitter last week working on working on some stuff Uh, but he's a holds a yeah he holds a world it was one point the world record for the 100 mile run and that was the american record but the man is unbelievably so i had him squat his his heels just went straight up like he he can't even squat and it was like you start to see that the people like the maasai tribe you know there, everyone's everyone talks about how balanced springy they are, but they have a very stiff spring. So to me, what would make the difference is can you have the capacity – like there's so many layers here because like on one hand, when you have the stiffness of those tendons, and if that's a natural thing, you will be faster. So some of the fastest people out there are just so stiff and tight, and they're successful because of that. The question is does that take away from the longevity because they don't have the ability to absorb force and then do they end up in a situation where they're more likely to get injured and more likely to have a loss of capacity because they don't have this ability to create they go in and out of that position which to me seems like there's a value in having some form of active stiffness as opposed to passive stiffness passive stiffness i can't control it's just is there so i can jump and spring off the ground but do i have the ability to adjust to this because that's where you start to see itises, Uh, like torn muscles, uh, soft tissue injuries, and then more serious injuries and people that have freak accidents. So there's a lot of pieces here. Um, And at the risk of going too broad, I'll try to summarize that uh, in two (laughs) things. One of which, so the first point is, I think that while there is room for disagreement on the nuances of how much we're pronating versus the the question is, do we pronate or do we pop? Do we dome the ground and like stretch out those, 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 what do you call those uh, arches and then spring back up like a trampoline? Or is there a pronation going across? I'm in favor of some level of pronation, even if it's a small thing. I think the less pronation you have, the more you're able to ideally hit the ground. The less pronation you have, the more stable of a surface you're on, the more you're able to just hit that force and direct it straight up into that uh, flexion extension and the rotation at the hip. Or, but some people would say you just pop the ground. And so maybe I think as you get to less and less stable surfaces, you have more pronation. And as you get to more and more stable surfaces, that's when you're able to just hit the ground and just pop, because that's going to be the quickest ground contact time. Obviously, doming the ground and hitting the ground is going to be quicker than pronating across at any stretch. So if you want to look at speed, the faster you're going to be is when you have less, less time on the ground, less ground contact time. So there is some room in that I think the context of that is going to be dependent on the shoes you're wearing, the sport you're doing, the speed you have, surface you're on, turf is gonna be different than grass, gonna be different than concrete, can be different than asphalt, gonna be different than gravel, gonna be different than uh, rubber. That's one set, there's room in there. Well we would none of us would disagree on the fact is that when you take the big toe and you tie it in there it's just like saying when you throw a football or throw a ball if I can't use my thumb it's going to impact the throw. so any dysfunction at that big toe is going to impact the ability of your foot to function, and more specifically anything that impacts the big toe will affect your ability to train. I think the single best part of the uh, I, I this is my opinion so don't don't uh this is not represent representative, but with ATG, one of the most valuable parts of that entire system is the ATG split squat. I think the single best part of that is the big toe extension. The fact that you get that big toe to extend all the way, I honestly think that makes such a different change for the entire foot that it opens up so much engagement there that the ankle can now move more. When the ankle can move more, the knee can flex. So I think like the biggest piece that anyone talks about is like, it's the big toes extending all the way. I remember Mike Boyle was talking about that years ago. Um, So fundamentally, you look at when you can get the big toe to move, when you can get that to function well, you're able to grab the ground, you're able to balance things like deadlifts, very static positions, you get more power from that. So when you're stronger, more powerful, your strength weight ratio is more optimal. That's when you can put more force out. So I would say the big toe probably is inarguably a more effective thing when it can spread and engage. And I think that's like, just like, if I have to grip a barbell, how much does my thumb matter? A lot. So like, if I have to grip something, it matters a lot. So you know, you think when it comes to lifting and I have to grip the ground, so to speak to hold on, the big toe matters a lot. When it comes to running, there's some room there. But I think, does that all makes sense? There's a lot. That, that
2: makes a lot of sense. Um, I kind of had a related question to that. Um, since you, I, I think I did hear you mention about the big toe and the glute in uh, Mark Bell's podcast. And mm-hmm. I, w- I would like to know how you couple the rotational forces at the leg and at the ankle, the foot, all the way up to the hip. Could you run us through how you see the sequence there yeah and uh how it yeah. relates to the glute
1: i love this so much i never get to nerd out <laughs> this <stuff>. it's so <laughs> fun. all right so um the big toe and so this is when i think about it people fundamentally the thing that i am learning as of late is that we think of the body in terms of muscles ligaments tendons like that's how we think about it right we got a skeleton behind you right? And very rarely is fascia. So even the old school definition of fascia was that you have to be able to see with your eye, you have to be able to cut it. So it has to be a sheet. And so the reality of those fascia is intertwined in between the muscle cells or the spindles. It's around the bones, the ligaments, the tendons. It's everywhere. It is the matrix that makes up the support of the body. So when we look at something like, oh, the big toe is a gluten gauger, we're thinking... Uh, well, partly it's there's a neuromuscular control of like I would never functionally use my glute if my foot was in contact with the ground. Like there's just not an a, there's not a real world example that I would be. So these two things are engaged together. So like I wouldn't be using my thumb if I didn't have to grip something, right? And so like then when I use my thumb, it's like what do I need? I need my shoulder to be attached to my torso because if I'm gripping something, then my arms can't fall out. So you would say it's very similar. The more that the thumb engages. The more that the torso the scapula the entire girdle around there the more that engages so you can see that part right so it's it's more of the contextual these are firing together so if i don't use my big toe then i'm not gonna use my glute as much that's that's one part of it right but because like the muscle it's not like there's a muscle in your big toe that's connected to the muscle in your glute. that's a musculoskeletal version but what does happen is when i set the tension so when i set that you look at the back of your hand and see i don't know if you can see that clearly but you see these lines if you look at the back of your foot you can see you should be able to see from the toes there are three or four lines of tendons that go from the toe and if you look at your foot and it's kind of this fleshy blob of something and you can't see the the strong lines on the outside of the back of your foot that means you don't have any fascial rigidity and so the reason the big toe matters is that is part of when i squeeze and engage that just like if I do the monkey knuckles, I squeeze and engage the hands, you feel this tension. You know, my fingers get stiff and I'm actually pulling. So I'm pulling and creating rigidity along this, like I'm pulling the steel cables and it's lifting up the bridge. So what you see though is it, when when you gray, engage and grab the ground with the foot, that's when you start to create tension in this fascial line that goes. And So you have a fascial line that goes along the front of the foot, the back of the foot, the inside, sorry, the body. You have a fascial line that goes from your big toe through your plantar fascia to your heel cord, to your hamstrings, glutes, back. Upper back, neck, shoulder, forehead, all the way to your eyebrows. Well, to your scalp, I suppose. Um, then you have one that goes along the top, the front of your body, from the top of the toes all the way to the the anterior tibialis through the, your quadriceps tendon, all the way to your hip flexors, all the way to your abdominals. And then you've got cross body lines. You've got ones that go up the side of the body, so your IT band is part of one of that goes around the outside, which is part of the fibularis, which is why it's so damaging for people to wear soccer cleats that squeeze their toes in. And then of course you've got the what I think is the biggest, most one of the most important ones that lines to the pelvic floor that goes from the big toe around the back So your FHL, which, like to me, it's silly to just talk about the FHL, the flexor hallucis longus. Like I'm not saying it's not. I like this is my bible beliefs, and there I have strongly held beliefs or strong beliefs loosely held. So I'm 100% okay to change when I find something that's more accurate. But I think the idea of talking about a muscle, it's like rarely are any injuries ever muscular. They're almost always soft tissue, connective, and around that. So. The idea of thinking, oh, I'm training the FHL. Like, yeah, the FHL is not doing that much. The connective tissue, the wraps around the FHL, and you see that line that goes from the big toe around behind the ankle, it goes up to the posterior tibialis, which is the middle shin. That goes along the inside of the knee, through the adductors, into the pelvic floor. So the ability is to do a Kegel or to pull, like, gird your loins, or like, stop peeing, basically, like, pull your testicles into your body if you're if you're a male or identify as a male. Yeah. That is part of where your body's engaging. and So when you look at the glute, that part of that is like, if I can't engage, sorry, if I can't get the, uh, like that big toe to engage, I can't create tension in the fascial line and then I can't set the pelvic floor. And that pelvic floor is part and parcel with getting the glute to engage. So that's one whole thing. That's how I view the body is going from the feet up. One of the things, the other part of that, well, sorry, does that make sense? Because I'm answer the other part of your question.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, The other part of the question was the rotational force.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. I'm so excited. This is great. <laughs> okay. So when you look at this, there's some part, and so what you look, what's the point of pronation, right? This, when we step in, the foot turns in. So the supination, pronation, pronation, well, I'd say supination, inversion, eversion, which are unloaded supination and pronation. Inversion is when you turn the bottom of your foot in, eversion, when you turn the bottom of your foot out, but it's when it's unloaded when i from my understanding when you put your foot in contact with the ground that's when you supinate when you basically turn that you lift the bottom of the foot up if you're pulling the inside of the arch up or you uh pronate when you inside of the ankle goes down and in so when we when you look at people running there's a slight inversion so they turn the bottom of the foot right before they make contact with the ground part of that is a pre-tensing of the muscles that are going to stabilize because when we hit the ground Yes, we're used to perfectly pristine two-dimensional surfaces that are – you know, we know this is concrete. It's it's unnatural in the sense that it's never changing, but our bodies aren't. So the pronation is giving a little bit of a – like I'm swinging the bat before the baseball gets across the plate, so I'm swinging ahead of time. So the pronation is I'm preparing for this, and the less stable of a surface, the more we need the pronation to be able to hit the ground and say in a split second – Am I able to figure out, you know, what's the angle of this? What's the, the the firmness? Is it loose? Am I is is it one constant surface or do I have to adjust to that to be able to make these micro adjustments where I strike on the outside and I prone it across? And so that pronation—that's where you see slower surfaces where you have more time in that. Faster surfaces, you don't have, you know, let's say faster, slower movement happens on less constant surfaces. Faster movement happens on more constant surfaces. So regardless, the point is that when you pronate and you make contact and you go across, even if it's a minimal thing, that's still a rotational force. So if you look at the axis around the foot, the foot is rotating across. So the pinky toe, you're going from the pinky toe to the big toe. So if you take your hand and put it on a table and I put my pinky finger down and then I put my big finger down, my thumb, there is a rotation. That's happening. So that's how you can visualize that. So the problem is that rotation is going across and that's going to throw. How do we transition that into what is a hip extension, hip flexion? Because we have to be able to transition this pronation force into the sagittal plane, which is the upright. So if my knee bends, my knee is bending in the sagittal plane. So part of that, my thought is that it pronates across until it lines up to a place where it's optimally stable. So that contact point, that second and first metatarsal where I'm hitting the ground and pushing, where I would really punch. So it's like I hear and I'm punching through, that's where the ankle, you start to see all the muscles around the inside, outside of the lower leg, lock in with the anatomical stability of that ankle joint, the slight hinge component, the slight uh, lock and talus, as well as the ball and socket capacity. So it's rotating around, it locks in. So that way you have a very strong thing. And then the whole ankle, shin, knee, and hip rotate as one. So it takes that pronation across and then transitions it vertically. So I'm going across in this, I guess, horizontal motion. There's a horizontal pronation. and I have to transition that vertically. So that's why I go there and I lock it. That's where the muscles contract. People think about things. And if you run and you're slow and it's a very muscular movement, I'm muscling through my muscles, so tired, I'm feeling sore. It's because you're using too much muscle. The muscles work isometrically to hit, pop, they hold onto a position. So they squeeze and engage, and they hold on to something, and they ratchet that force all the way up through, through the fascia line, uh, through the bones are just leveraging. They shouldn't be stacking on top of one another, but through the joints, into the hips. That internal rotation, so as I step and I'm pronating, that horizontal rotation turns into vertical rotation. That's actually turning inward, so I'm internally rotating that hip. That stretches the glute out. And if you look at the glute, it's a primary hip extensor, but it's also a hip external rotator. If you look at the the pattern, it attaches at that sacroiliac joint and it wraps around to the the femur. That actually, that stretch creates a reflexive activation. So, you know, if you're sitting down and the doctor hits the the patellar tendon and your knee jumps up, that's a reflexive activation. The muscle stretches and it it reflexes to hold on to that. So as the entire femur, knee, lower leg and shin and ankle complex rotates inward, it stretches that glute out. This is right about the exact same time that big toe, you're passing over the center mass on the ground. You're pushing. You'd be making contact, pushing through that metatarsal big toe joint. So the glute's engaging. So the glute is engaging with a tactile feedback so the big toe is in contact with the ground. Whether or not they – so that's – I think it's probably a silly thing I'm pushing through my big toe because the big toe has got no muscle relative to the glute. But what happens is as you internally rotate, it stretches the glute out. That reflexive activation gets the glute to fire. And so as part of that, the glute extends, and it pushes, and you try forward. So then the cool thing is that creates an external rotation of the hip. So the whole thing actually rotates, which then stretches out the internal rotators, which are the hip flexors. At this point, I'm pushing, I'm extending, my foot's going behind me. So the internal rotation, the hamstring is engaged uh, passively. The hamstring is now stretched, so it reflexes, and pull, it reflexes and pulls back in. And the internal rotators are now being stretched out. So then the rectus femoris and iliacus and the psoas, those all fire to internally rotate and drive the knee back up. So they aid. The problem is that the people strain their hamstrings when they can't use their hip flexors. And part of that is set when you don't have the fascial line that lets your hip rotate. So when my hip flexors can't pull my knee back up, the hamstring has to make up for that. That's why you get weak Front, front side mechanics, meaning people's legs trail behind them and then their legs get overextended and they're reaching way back and then they over pull the hamstrings and they're using this really dynamic position. So your Nordic is not what's going to make you faster. It's going to be strong to help you in this position, but the Nordic is just kind of like, it's kind of helping you have stronger hamstrings, which some people desperately need. But the real thing is like, can you push and can you have the strength in your foot, ankle lower leg to hold that position while you ratchet that force internally up and externally up? So when I push off we have the soleus and gastroc strength to hold that position to drive through. That creates the internal rotation torque as those flex and they drive in, and the hip flexors then, as they stretch out, they fire, hold the knee back up, and that's what gets the hamstring knee flying up and through, and you start the next cycle. Make sense? It
0: makes sense.
2: Absolutely, I love it. Go ahead, Anthony.
0: Yeah, I was. Just, um, you know, we've we've operated on this sort of ro- like we 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 had a hard time reconciling the rotary model without looking at the rotary actions of the, the, the body all the way up to the hip without looking at the rotation of the foot as an actual rotation. And I think that's kind of where, you know, when, when Gota talks about their inside ankle bone low thing and the avoiding of that, like maybe excessive pronation or weight into the, into the big toe is this idea that because that, I love that you said that, the lower limb, the upper limb, the the ankle, the knee, the hip—they're all turning together, right? They're mm-hmm. all kind of turning as this one unified thing. And that's, I think, one of the goals that we have in this podcast is to try and get everyone's ideas and see where they overlap and see where where people are kind of talking about the same things and see where there's more uh, more similarities and differences, I guess. Mm-hmm. And in 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 a lot of the the models that we've kind of talked about, we look at the the sort of anatomical structure of the bone of the foot itself as like a like almost like a bridge that can carry and absorb more force than say the soft tissue of the arch right Mm -hmm. so like you know this idea of this pushing down and bouncing into the arch I think it's um I can't remember the the windlass mechanism I think is what it's called right if if I'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken it's like you sort of you you collapse the arch and it and it has this elastic recoil that um, we speculated it's like, it's a lot of force to be dumping into soft tissue versus you have this bone, which, you know, is this boomerang shape. You can sort of funnel this weight, uh, like almost in a boomerang way, you know? And the question was for, for me for a long time was like, okay, well, if it's following this bony bridge, doesn't that automatically make your ankle collapse? Or if you, but now if you're, if you're talking about the whole rotation of the ankle, the knee and the hip all at the same time then it's all going to transfer and you're not going to get a lot of dumping into that side. You're not going to get a lot of excess pronation there. So, so it sounds like you start in an everted position it, when your mm-hmm. foot doesn't make contact to the ground. Inverted. And then when you make inverted, sorry. And then when you make contact on the ground, that's when you start to pronate and you just almost pronate to enough of a neutral position until the point where you can just pull it back from the, from the loading in yeah. the glutes essentially. That's what I, that's what I heard i try to like to summarize the points that, yeah. that we we try to make because we can cover a lot of ground in a lot of time was that was that a like a good exploit like did that answer all your questions well
2: uh yeah like i think what graham said uh made a lot of sense like I, i'm gonna have to go back and re-listen because it was a lot right but uh <laughs> yeah no it was it was all good um obviously the models aren't gonna all line i'm not looking for that i'm looking for you know your interpretation of it and yeah i I thought your answer was fantastic there for clarity well i like
1: you know for it no no please please like the idea of having different models is an interesting thing because at some point it's like this these are things that you look and you say well when you actually look at the stride you look at someone that's running really fast they're on the ground for such a short amount of time that it's like it, 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 like if you think about this in terms of bones and muscles and ligaments and tendons, you miss the fact that I think it's like all of those things, like what's the purpose of a bone? Well, the bone is to provide leverage. So like if I have a long rod, the bone is not meant to be weight-bearing. It's meant I can pull on this and create an outsized mechanical advantage, a moment arm at the end of that. The tendon, it, so the ligament is just to hold those pieces together, right? It creates some stability that you know allows it to move and some, but if a ligament stretches more than 6% of its length, it's going to tear. A tendon it just connects a bone. So that's the connective tissue that like pulls off of that. So if the muscle is engaging, a muscle, we think like a muscle has to go through a full range of motion, but it takes time for a muscle to go through a full range of motion. And if you're thinking about the milliseconds of like the top, top, top sprinters that are just on the ground i mean think of like you're doing a hundred meter sprint in 10 seconds and you're going to take what like 20 or 30 or 40 i don't know how many steps like 50 steps it's like 50 steps in 10 seconds what's your ground contact time there it's like it's a what muscle can fire that quickly because it's like you think for a muscle to fire think about it, for a muscle to fire the muscle has to then go pull on this so like if i my bicep fires i have to pull on this which means i have to then get that to engage take this back out of the system and then pull this up to get a motion. Because the muscle is – you look at the cross bridge or like the, the – um, what do you call it? The uh, – the, where it's stronger one position than it is in the other, um, like the force curve of a muscle. Yeah. Like it's – I'm going to be weak in my bicep when I begin to flex it. And then when it gets about 90 degrees, that's when I'm about the strongest, right? So I have to flex it and wait for the time because my hand can only move that fast. That's not enough time to go and sprint. So when you look at it, it's like there needs to be a bunch of like, structures, and that's where the fascia, I think, is just – it's just, its stronger than steel at some point. And when you maintain the proper function, you can get this. That's why, like, you see people where they go, and they can just maintain the stiffness. They hit the ground, and just lightning rushes right, up, and it's the speed of – the speed of your gravity in a sense. It's, like it's all the way up, and it's down. It's, and you just – they're not – it's not a muscular thing and that's the thing of like running so uh, uh, to illustrate that they did this study because the only other animal in the animal kingdom this is from what i remember from the study that has a similar achilles tendon setup as a human is a kangaroo so they put a kangaroo on a treadmill and they had to walk for half a mile and then they, the they, they had bounce for half a mile it used less energy they've also strapped it to a VO two max thing i don't know how they did that but it <laughs> used less energy bouncing and it's like we are designed to be effective Creatures. So think about the idea of a throw. It's like I create positional strength. So like positional potential energy with stored elastic and I just follow through that. You know, it's like the, a baseball pitcher is not muscling through that throw. They're creating a ballistic force. Where I step and I stop and that stop as I follow through, it just ratchets through the whole body. And I think the thing with sprinting is like the point of the muscle is the muscle needs to be able. So I think about like if you go walk in your tiptoes, you do a calf raise. I've actually stopped doing all calf raises and I just do isometric holes at the top. It's like, you get through a calf raise it's like i could go through a full calf raise potentially but what matters more when it comes to sprinting is can i hold this top position and there's a degree i think it's like uh, 15 to 30 degrees above and below that position so if i can get up on my toes my tiptoes and i press in and squeeze that as hard as i can and i hold that position that means and obviously this is that's that's potatoes compared to the force to go through your body when you're jumping and, and doing plyometrics and sprinting but that's why like that's why i go and i sprint barefoot so i did some sprints on sunday and my feet and calves are still way sore. And I've been doing this for years. But it's like the faster you get, the quicker you get, the better your form gets. You're able to put a huge force in that body. And that's remodeling the connective tissue. So the question is, are the muscles strong enough to hold that top position? So if you think, what's the quickest? How quick can I strike the ground and come back off? Right. So how, like the, the question is, okay, if I make contact, whatever the natural position is, I want to be able to hold that position. So if I can make contact there and have zero muscle movement, and just have must be strong enough to allow the tendon to stretch or come back, that quick elastic explosive thing gives me energy to shoot me off for the next step. So it's like, I just, you look at this, I think the problem is when we start to, if we look at any model that doesn't just involve an explosive, very elastic, very rigid fascial driven perspective, it's very, it's easy to sit there and say what you did, which is like, okay, well the bone's going across and doing this, it's like, it makes sense intellectually if you think about the running format if, if it was 20 times slower. But when you look at the actual speed of this stuff, it's like, holy fuck, the whole thing, the body just needs to stay still. And so then you get to the question like I, I think roughly speaking, it's a helpful cue to think of. About- Pushing off your big toe because if you're doing that, you're generally going to align the knee over in this ideal. You're aligning the body. There's things that go. A cue is not always beneficial for the fact of the cue. It's sometimes beneficial for the way it helps you think about that, right? So, like, well, if you're, you know, I'm sure you like have had people you talk to, and it's like, I'm going to give you this cue, like hump the bar for Olympic weightlifting, right? You know, I think it was John North you talk about hump the bar. It's like, it's. I don't want you to drive your hips horizontally, but if it gets – if you're doing this thing and I, my cue helps you shift you, even if I cue – let's say the correct path is right down the middle and you're to the right, you're on one end of being, making an error. If I cue you into the other end of making an error, the cue may be inaccurate in and of itself, but it pulls you towards the correct path, and then I can teach you from mm-hmm. that. So that's why I think pushing off the big toe can be a helpful cue for some people and maybe horrible for other people. And ultimately the big toe is not, it is not, there's not enough strength or time for the big toe to actually push through and deliver that. So I really think it's this power that's coming from this fascial line and it's that's where everything's coming from. Like there, there's nuance that. There. So that's what I would look at. I just, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a super clarifying perspective actually. And because, you know, even, even when doing a lot of the go to work myself, um, am talking to all these coaches. Uh, even my my arch structure tended to feel a little bit more lifted and a little more stable if even if i'm trying to get that inside ankle bone high position if i just have enough contact with my big toe it just feels like that whole fascial line in the foot is just a little bit more bouncy if that makes sense yes um now from that perspective you know a lot of some of the discussions that we've had have also been do muscular and concentric oriented training like, you know, squats and these Nordic curls and, and these things, do they have a direct correlation to, you're, you're saying it's like the muscle is more just how, how stable can you keep that structure during these rapid movements? And the rest is basically, um, you know, tissue remodeling from you know, your fascia adapting to to these really mm-hmm. dynamic movements. So what role does strength training have in improving your, your force production or your, your sprinting efficiency, how does, how does like a a concentric muscular dominant training, does it apply or should you focus? Is there, is there a fascial focused training that you look at doing? What's your take on that? This is so much fun. No one ever asked me (laughs) a question. Um, So
1: fundamentally, I I think that the, I, I would say that each of these large, let's say, paradigms of training have a very valuable perspective. So the problem is when you try and take one to make it all work. And so with ATG, the biggest value is let's do some stress on this long range tissue, which basically pulls the fascia is trained in a few different, there's three different parts you need to do to train the fascia. First, you have to have some type of hydration. So that's a warm up, right? So that's where like if you have stiffened tissue, then you basically the massage, the cupping, stuff like that can basically get the hyaluronic acid, which is in between the layers of the fascia to move. And you're literally getting hydration to the tissue. Because otherwise, if you don't move, it gets dried out. So that's the first part, you have to have tissue that is warm. That's why being in the sauna, being warm, doing very simple warm ups can help too, right? So hence the sled and ATG is so good and it's valuable to push through the toes and get some of that stuff moving and engaging there. Then you want to do these long, multi-vector, awkward, slow positions that you move, like a Tai Chi, an example. So it's got a viscoelastic, visco-elastic property Whereas you press in and you pull, like a gummy worm or a plastic bag, you pull and you can create stress and you can get it to reshape. A plastic bag won't remodel, but a biological tissue will, in a sense. So you're creating length. So you get hydration and you use the hydration to create length. And from that, that now you've kind of like got in and kneaded the dough. And then you go and you work on strength work. And so that strength work for fascia is a plyometric rhythmic repeated thing. So jump roping, running, skipping, hopping, bounding, et cetera, right? So it needs to be rhythmic. And so you can do shoulder swinging, throwing. You just have to put a, that kind of like a load on. And fascia is trained like a light switch. of it can be trained like a dimmer switch. You can do like 20%, 30%, 50%. You can go all the way, or you go a little bit and you get a little bit sore and relative results proportionate to that. Fascia is like a light switch. You have to put enough stress on the tissue in order for it to actually make a meaningful change the fibroblasts to break down fibroblasts are, are creating the, the collagen um and then the fiber actually I forget the name of them, but basically there's there's cells that build up or break the, the, that tissue down so you need to make enough damage so to speak on the tissue that you cause a change and so it takes time for that to recover so hence my running it's pretty yesterday and that's why most people can train to be really strong muscularly and have very stiff uh Dehydrated and immobile fascial tissue that is not strong enough, and so that's why you can have muscular dominant things. So from that perspective, I think the ATG one of the best benefits was it did the short and long range. So the short range, which was good for getting blood flow and hydration, the long range, which is good for pulling even the viscoelastic. But without the third part, which is the actual rhythmic explosive elastic uh, athletic component, then you end up not getting the adaptations you need. That being said, that's not what Ben's going for. He's trying to get people out of knee pain. So for the vast majority of people who just want to have their knees better, then absolutely they need the sled, they need the split squat, they need tip raises, the short range, long range movements. Now that's his message that's to what he's doing earlier on, and just being doing some of the stuff earlier on. He had a lot more of the uh, like jumping, bounding stuff like that, and so that's where your started to get the changes. If you want to be able to dunk, you can't just do the strength work for ATG and then dunk. Like it's just not going to happen. You have to actually train those elastic components as well. So that's why they're there. That's where goda would look at, like, okay, they do a little bit. Actually, I don't know enough about this to speak intelligently on them, but in many ways, I think they go and they work on let's get to more ice mission let's get to more of these adaptive positions. So they're creating an in-range position for the high ankle bone, the uh, uh, like back dominant high ankle bone, and getting in some of these positions. So I think that they're, they're, fundamentally they're all all of these processes are using the same kind of model, so to speak for that, because they're getting hydration, in the tissue, and then they're optimizing a specific long range adaptation. So we go to some of the movements, some more like high ankle bones, you're doing very pulsing, very small movements, and you're kind of engaging that and getting hydration in the tissues and getting them stronger. Really, the benefit, I think the biggest benefit of all this stuff now is because people have forgotten about fascia for forever, because it's a Tai Chi thing. It's been around for forever, but we forgot, we collectively forget. If you wait five or 10 more years, five by five and then five, three, one, the big strong man, the power lifter stuff, that's going to come back because people need to get stronger. Because what you're going to see now is everyone gets skinny and weak and they don't do anything like real weight. And so then they get like skinny and mobile, but it's like, we need some big boys to be able to move some weight. So like, but that's my, that's another thing I've talked about with Mark Bell a lot. Um And that's another thing I've been out with, with Mark a lot in California and Sacramento at his uh, uh his gym out there. And so we we spent a lot of time thinking and, and geeking out about this stuff. Um But Fundamentally, it's say, okay, to the extent that they're able to create a fascial change, that's when you start to see a reduction of pain because you're taking the stress off the bones. So they're no longer compressing one another. You're seeing a reduction of muscle stiffness. You're, you're seeing a reduction of the itises, or so the tendinitis, fasciitis, where that's the tissue is not strong enough, connective tissue is pulling on the insertion. So when that has healthier, more elastic, pliable capacity, it's no longer creating irritation. So that's one component. So you're seeing that as well. So those are the benefits there. That being said, I think it's incomplete until you look at what Joel Seaman's doing. I think he's got an amazing approach, which is when you – the problem is in all of these things when they only advertise that one stuff. Like when you look at the stuff in David Weck's perspective, I think he's spot on with this. Is like they go to – looks at their well, – I, I, I don't want to be in the middle of all these things. I'm just asking questions. But um, fundamentally, I think the problem is when you look at things from an ivory tower and say, oh, yeah, I want to do this stuff. What happens the second you need to turn even a quarter of an inch? Tra- like You can look at a track and say, this is just like doing a drag race, right? I need my car to be able to go straight really quick. But what happens if I want to do a rally race or if I'm a football athlete or I play soccer or basketball? I need to decelerate. I need to jump. I need to do all this stuff. What changes? So that's when it's like it's there is something to be said for like this very specific factual thing. But that's where the muscle – there are times where I do have a slower ground contact time, right? I do need to decelerate. I do need to change direction. I do need to backpedal. And it's okay, that's where the muscle comes into play, right? But that's where it's important to have muscle mass, both from a perspective of I need to have actual mass to give my body something to move, but then also the muscle is your protection mechanism. The fascia is what gets you moving and exploding because the muscle generates force through the connective tissue and fascia, and that's where you explode and you move quickly. So when I make a decision where I'm going to go, the muscle generates force and I go. And then once I start that way, then the rhythmic portion of that. So a box jump, for example, is not a plyometric. A box jump, I generate force from a muscular direction and I drive through. If I did multiple hurdle jumps, that's a plyometric because it has to have the uh, the eccentric, the amortization. The eccentric is where it stretches out the muscle or it stretches the tissue. I should probably update that. The amortization is where it changes the direction of movement. And the concentric is where it shortens and creates force. That's required for the plyometrics. And there's different types of plyometrics. But when you look at a box jump, it's, I'm muscularly creating force. I'm sending at the tendons and I explode. There's no absorption of that. So that's where like if I need to change direction, I have to decelerate, which is I'm absorbing that force with the muscle. It's a longer ground contact time. That's when the bones and joints move over leverage. I have to soften that. and Then I change direction. So that's a muscle moving in a different direction. So that perspective is saying, okay, that's where it matters how strong your muscles are. That matters. Can I move through a full range of motion? That matters. Do I have muscle mass to be able to soften and create support? So that's where you look and say, yes, the muscle training does matter. But are we doing it effectively? And I think fundamentally for the longevity of what we've done, like the most popular stuff completely misses the point. Because I would say if you're already doing mid-range motions, you don't need to do more of that. If I'm running, if I'm jumping and doing like lunges, it's like I'm already in that position all the time. So a mid-range position, I would say, like if you look at a bicep, if I straighten my arm all the way out, that's a stretched out position. If I put uh, weight in my hand under load, it had some consequence for that position. Then I saying, OK, that's pulling on the connective tissue and the muscles. That's a long range position. A short range position is I all the way in the side where the connective tissue and the, the tendons are as they're shortened, so they're not really they're in a locked in position. The muscle is engaged, the muscle dominant position where the muscle is really contributing and it's not much stress on the connective tissue at all. Some of the bodybuilding really crushes that short range of position to get the muscles to engage. And, you know, you look at so powerlifting Well, sorry, I'll, I'll back off how bodybuilding, I think, is really valuable. That's what I've been exploring more with with Mark is that there's a, they have really it's been like Charles Glass, some of these guys that have been pioneers of a lot of the stuff too, that, like. You look at these guys, like they're brilliant in terms of the big, different ways you can move your body, engage your muscles, you can orient your muscle fibers. Like they're they're the king of the short range, king queens of the short range position. So a lot of stuff they're doing, there's a lot of value there, short range. But without the long range, and you end up not having the connective tissue resiliency. But then you want to look at, say, I need maximal strength. I need to bring my ceiling up. So I look at short and long range training. All the basic movements, we need to break them up and say the lunge. It's a waste of time. So let's either take what's the joint, what's the muscle we're trying to engage here, what's the movement we're trying to engage here, I should say. There's a long range of that, which is pulling out the connective tissue, so I need to make the connective tissue healthy and strong. There's a short range, which I need to have the muscle that can fire and engage and get blood flow and hydration. But then there's the mid-range. The mid-range is we don't need to be moving in that extra load. But that's where Joel Siemens, I think his stuff is so good, where you get to a heavy, heavy, heavy load, and you get to a 90-degree, and you hold that for a second, isometric. Is that isometric radiates at 10, 15, 20 degrees above and below. And that's where you bring the ceiling up. Because I need to have a high potentiated ceiling, but I don't necessarily – i my strength curve is not optimized to be able to put force. So that Mark Bell, his slingshot, It's
0: brilliant. Have you ever used a slingshot before? You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I've never got to use one. Even when I was powerlifting, I never uh, never. – it, so, it is so –
1: the powerlifters are the last people who should use it, which is crazy. It is – amazing because you look at the power if i'm driving i need power and force here if i'm punching or throwing and doing this last little bit yet why am i stressing my joint with the weight i want i'm either overloading joints in weak spot. i'm not getting training adaptation so it's a sleeve you put around each arm and is an elastic band goes across your chest as you get down it gives you strength and it takes the pressure off the joints in the weakest position and it goes up and again you may think well i need to buy my joint strong your joints don't need to be as strong. And you're always going to have your weakest link. So you're either going to say, I'm going to lower my strength so that they're only as strong as my weak link, or I'm going to optimize positions. When we go to sport, people are like saying, um, like in football, well, if you get in the full range of motion, you get a full squat, what are you going to do? If you get in a full squat and playing football, you're done for the play. It's over. You sit on the ground. You're, it's, you're not coming back. Sport and dynamic movement is done in short-range explosive motion. So the slingshot allows you to really overload and drive and create a higher ceiling where it actually matters. The Joel Seidman stuff where you get to a partial nine degree and you really bring that ceiling up, you're minimizing the stress in the joint because you're not going through the weaker portion. That And the problem is I think he could do a better job of expressing that a lot. Like uh, what he does is, is it, it's not just that. You also have to get the muscle, the lightweight movement for the muscle down the bodybuilder. Like they'll do curls, they're only doing 20, 30, 40 pounds, right? And then when Ben does his stuff and GoTo does their stuff, I don't know if GoTo uses the way, but their stuff is very similar. I think GoTo stuff is a little bit more geared towards the fine tune. Like Ben stuff is like every car. I think about it this the way. Like every single car needs oil changes, needs gas, and needs, you know, or, or uh, Tesla, whatever. But like every car has these basic things. They have wheels, they have an axle, they have transmission. So Ben stuff hits all that. Now, if you look at like the sport version of a car where you need to have some specific things tuned up a little bit higher, like a, a stiffer sh- a suspension and maybe like a different type of fuel, that's where GoTo does. So GoTo is kind of like a subset of VIN. And it's just like, yeah, we need to have the short, long range stuff. GoTo does that, but I think the way they're geared towards the greatest of all time actions is like they're geared towards a specific output, which is like this. Is, I want you to be able to do that. You can make the argument that the ideal healthy human has those capacities. That's great. But in a population where 60 or 72% of people are overweight and 44% are obese, something like that. Let's just start with getting people to move and get them out of knee pain. Now, so that's why I think the difference is there. I think they're similarly geared, but I think that the language they use and like the subset of like who can really use this stuff and benefit is different. Then you look at like the bodybuilders for like they're really optimizing the muscle composition, which you need to have that mass. You combine that, those three elements, so the short range, long range, and the mid range overload potentiation, which is what Seedman's doing great with um, in the optimal uh, muscle fiber connection, optimal strength curve, that brings the ceiling up. So then you get the strength, you get the connective tissue and then you get the muscle muscle contribution. That's my perspective on all of it.
0: It's a pretty broad perspective too and and just just for your own benefit too with uh with cuz cuz I've done both ATG and I've worked with a go to coach and kind of been able to see pretty pretty in depth the differences in their approach. The the way that I kind of explain it to people the difference between ATG and GOTA is that ATG has a focus on tissue adaptations and, and creating a really solid structure. Whereas GOTA is this idea of creating like what they view as efficient movement patterns, which would stop tissue deg- degradation. So they think that certain movement patterns are suboptimal for people to go through because when you create certain joint angles, it's wear and tear on the tissues. So they, they it's a stop the bleeding approach versus even when I was talking to Keegan, he's like, well, it doesn't matter if you have a thicker wire, you're going to pull on that wire, it's not going to break. Right. So it's, I kind of look at it as more of like a tissue training adaptation thing versus a pattern, pattern training adaptation thing where they, you know, like they're, they're greatest yeah. of all time athletes. It's uh they, they kind of look at it as like, what's the indigenous human pattern. And they try to pattern that in now, the the question for me is like, and, and Will and I have actually had this, this back and forth is, is uh, you know, just repeating the patterns over and over the most optimal way to create the, that, that type of pattern in someone or or is there a certain uh, tissue quality or or an attribute structurally that that lends itself to these patterns right we've kind of talked back and forth i mean tissue training versus pattern training has been an ongoing debate since we started you know over 55 episodes ago right so this is this is an ongoing discussion i love so you're also the first person i've heard to talk about joel seedman um, in a favorable way, <laughs> he's hes you know, he's like, he's, he's very easily straw manned as someone who's, who's doing the fancy stuff for Instagram. Right. And I, I think, um, I, and I was one of those people too, cause you know, you look at something and you instantly dismiss it because you don't understand what the hell's going on. And then, uh, you know, I had some other conversations with some really smart coaches and they're like, no, like, look, look at what he's doing. There's actually some, some nuance to to what he's doing here. Um, so 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 if i'm going to summarize and see if i understand kind of where you're coming from like there is there is the the actual fascial adaptations that come from a rhythmic bounding stimulus and that is going to specifically you know you have those those multiple phases of movement that your fashion needs in order to adapt uh, the box jump is a bad example because it's just a concentric movement you're jumping on top you kind of need that rhythmic bounding motion for the actual fibroblasts and everything to, to sort of signal and, and adapt the fascial tissue to have that elastic quality, that rebounding quality. Um there is some benefit that to creating a nervous system stimulus, strength stimulus, but there it's maybe not necessarily as beneficial to go to these places where your joints are weakest and where you have this 90 degree angle, you can create a, a like an overloading stimulus that Maybe potentiates your nervous system for more force output without putting excess strain on the joint itself. Is that is that right? You correct me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting what yeah. you're saying. I'm just trying to summarize and make sure that I understand it too. Broadly speaking, I think that that's what, I think
1: that's ideal, um, and a lot of that stems from the idea of. I mean it's so because on top of this there's training but then there's also like okay are you recovering you know do you have the nutrition are you sleeping are you like actually moving and so the the biggest thing i would agree like people it's i used to be and trust me i'm i've, I've as i matured i understand more people but it's, it's like i think the hard part is when you see people that post a part of what they do or like even if it's just like a main thing and that's the problem with the internet It wants to slide you into a niche and say this is exactly like all you know, people just think all I do is walk around on my tiptoes and my bare feet all day. It's like when well, there's a whole like <laughs> flush about it, but um, like that's the hard part is there. But yeah, so that's from my understanding, and this is my understanding, What do I know? I'm, I'm I'm just an average guy that just thinks about stuff. But like that's like with that, I think that those are the the main part because you have to look and say, because what I think that Joel Seedman does. So there's like the tissue there's 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 a third component right so if you want to look at like I, I, the pattern thing i kind of I, I get it it makes sense that there's a lot of that stuff when you're going in these positions but it's kind of like you're in these patterns but it's like i think you just have to do it and the heart all right so this this is my idea, another thought i have i think so much of the stuff is people trying to justify their own job right maybe not right i'll I make you agree with that yeah but so let me let me think about that uh, for let me let me unpack that for a second so You're a strength coach, right? You have a football team that comes in. You can't control if they win or lose. What do you control? We got stronger. Their bench went up. Their squat went up. Our guys gained 10 pounds of muscle. Good to go, coach. Like, but you have to create metrics that justify your existence. Does that make sense? And it's like, so it's hard to hear anybody say anything and say, if you're trying to justify why you need to do your thing, I'm not saying it's not accurate what I'm also saying is like you people become blind to see that like, yeah, of course, you got to do my thing because of this reason. It's like, how much of the like, how much of training do we even need to do? For example, if you have a young, healthy kid, at what point, like, maybe they need to put on some muscle, but it's like, when do when do kids become unathletic? The Maasai tribe have never lifted weights, they don't do any of that stuff. It's like, you know, and so this is the hard part though, of saying, Oh, you know, uh, fetishizing this pure, uh, like indigenous existence. I don't know any indigenous people. I can watch some videos, but like, does it, how much much of the lifestyle do you have to maintain to maintain those qualities? Is it being on the ground 20 hours a day? You know, 25, like, so at what point the sitting? if I sit in a chair for three hours a day, four hours a day, if I wear shoes, like, at what point does that change what my tissues are capable of? So like, this is the same thing with diet. It's like, Of course, I can walk around and say, all I need to do is eat these things and drink this stuff. But guess what? The food isn't the same. You know, the fat content is the same. The sunlight's not the same. The water's not the same. The air quality is not the same. It's like, so yeah, it works. But in some senses, like, what are we dealing with what we got now? And so that's when I look at, like, there's, there's, we need to prepare the tissue, which is, I think, what both the bodybuilding side and the ATG go to stuff do is like, they can talk about patterns. But what are patterns without tissue? That's kind of like saying the software versus the hardware. You can't have software unless you have a computer to run it on. So I think they both have a place. I don't see them as mutually exclusive, right? But if you don't have tissue, if my knees can't bend, if I can't move my toes, if I can't even engage and lift my toe, my inside ankle up, or if I don't have the resiliency to be able to engage this tissue, the pattern means nothing to me. And that's where I think you get lost if you focus on pattern, 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 then pattern for what? A pattern for this sport, a pattern for this context. And that's where David Weck, I think, pulls a little bit more thread saying, You know, it's like it's there's no perfect thing. You can't just say this is exactly how you should move all the time that I don't look at there as being any bad actions. And I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong. I think they have a really good spot because once you have the tissue capacity, then it's like, yeah, let's start to think about what this would look like and get you in better positions. Sure. We all teach form when we teach them on a clean and deadlift and move. Yeah, it matters. So what does it look like to build the basic building steps for getting you in a better awareness for these positions that you will be in when you run and sprint and jump and do this? That's great. The other side of that, though, is not just like the muscle tissue and the connective tissue, but it's also the neural drive. And that's where I think it's potentiation, because I can have all the tissue strength, all the capacity in the world. But if my brain, how many spinal cord people do you see that have a spinal cord injury? And guess what? They're not walking anymore. And it's like you can do all the stuff in the world. But if I can't drive a signal to my brain, so I need to be aggressive and I need to put some force into this, then I don't have that. And so the question is, what's the best way to potentiate my system? All right, get under load, load my spine, put some pressure, some mechanical force on my body. Now, in that question is, what's the best way to do that? Okay, I could do machines and take away, but then I take away the balance. And if I just do a machine where I'm pushing, I have no neuromuscular control, I have no balance, and I'm not actually potentiating that. So I want to say I want to do this in as applicable a position as possible. But then I also know that my joints, this is not like the problem people want to defend and say, well, your joints need to be strong across the board. But they're just not. You're not every point is like, at some point doing, I've been doing jujitsu more. Um, and so like at some point you can snap a bone, you can snap an arm. You watch Listen mm. to John Donahue talk about, it. you know, if you put love leverage on someone's arm and snap, I'm like, God, you're fucking, it's crazy. Like you're just, you, <laughs> the way you think about like breaking bodies like that, but you think, okay, the joints are just tissue. They can't, they're not Superman. It's not like we have this idea like, I just need to get in this position. Everything's going to be perfect across the board. They're going to be stronger at some points than others. So then I want to get, what can I do to get to the strongest position that causes the least and tear? especially if I'm thinking about an athlete that has to be able to recover and play, I need to be able to get as much goal, much gain from this, with this minimal downside. So yeah, let me get to the place where my muscles, my joints, and my body is as strong as possible and load as much as possible and then get out of that. Now that's like saying, I need to be able to do this, but I still have to floss my teeth. I still need to make sure that my getting all those other things there. So like at any conversation saying, all you need to do is just get the tissue ready. Well, yeah, but you need to be able to get a signal to them. All you need to do is just have the pattern. Well, yeah, you have to have the signal. You have to have the tissue to be able to hold that. And you have to have the signal to go through it. Or all you have to do is get the signal. Well, on what tissue? You know, it's like, so I think these are three pieces that all flow together. And actually, this is the thing I'm realizing as we're talking. It's like the movement, the patterns. So there's the tissue, there's the pattern, there's a signal. If you have any program that doesn't hit all three of those, you're going to suffer. It's going to be pain, injury, or lack of performance. And that's what I say. like, my, I have this this thought is like, whatever you get behind the acronym, an acronym something, it's behind the acronym also So it was FP AD. Like I will go because some people get mad at me, but like the point is like, <laughs> you know that you know them, PRI, FMS. Like whenever there's something behind an acronym, we miss the point because it's not about the fucking acronym. It's about the fact that that's one piece of it. Like an acronym, for example, what is you know like just think of an acronym. We have like a uh, USA. It's like okay, great, but is that the only country in the world? No. And what is it? USA. It's three of 26 letters in the alphabet. And if you miss all the other letters, of the alphabet, you forget a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, wh- you know, that's what I'm saying is like when we get to the acronyms, we miss the rest of the alphabet. So I'm like, let's just use the other words and contribute with this idea. That's my thought. If there's any value I can bring is because I have no like no professional reputation. I can just kind of like I'd like to play like what you're doing. Let's play in the middle and kind of pull these ideas together
0: yeah and that's that's a hundred percent that's our intention in all of these conversations I, i'm I'm pretty much in the same place that you are I'm not patterns versus versus tissue training necessarily because I, I I do both in my own training as well I, I do I, I just do and it makes the most sense right like it's you you still want to work. even when I was a powerlifter even when I was a bodybuilder it was it wasn't just like the the tissue stimulus it was also the form that you were doing and the pattern that you were doing it in. You want you know when I was powerlifting it was like how how efficient can I make this movement right and and so I'm you know now that i'm I'm exploring things that are more complex rotational dynamic, I'm trying to apply those same principles where it's like okay how how can I support my structure while also creating efficiency in in these patterns the best that I can ultimately um and that yeah the the point the point of these conversations is not to be like, well, these guys said this, but these guys said this or, <laughs> what do you what do you think who's right who's wrong you know <laughs> Well, what's uh, if it, it went down it kind of quiet? I'm wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just uh, like all this stuff's fascinating, right? And it like I'm I'm in agreement with Anthony there. I want to hear what everyone has to say, and you know, like Bruce Lee, uh, take what's useful and disregard the rest, and you might come back for the rest later. You know, I have that last part in. Um, I was gonna ask you, uh, how do you look at core training? Are you uh, more into the anti rotation type stuff or I don't know if you've heard of Serge Grekovetsky and spinal engine. Having the, um, so basically it's the concept of the head lands over the foot. I'm sure you've heard of it from David Weck. No, you just you, um, no, you just um, allowing the body Mane to too. move, the spine moves side to side. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of those concepts and do you integrate either one into your training? That being um, anti rotation or uh, spinal engine.
1: So there's two parts, one of which I think if you get too much into a, a vacuum with that, like, yeah, does the head go over the spine? Sure. But is it going to look different, like, with your trail running versus, you know, running on a road? Like, yeah. Like, um, look, I, I think that there's two there – it's context-dependent. So the anti-rotation, I think, is for creating stability. And so remember what I said, that, like, the body will always choose stability over mobility. So if we don't have it, – it, it, to the degree that we can create a stable structure, our body will then allow us to flow. And so we can override that stuff with some hyperlax individuals or ballet dancers that just kind of like a gymnast to train themselves over and over and over to do that. But if you also look at gymnasts, they tend to have the strongest core. So, like, I think that there's a place – the way I look at that is saying how do you get the maximum performance without sacrificing? Let's say health is the body, if you look at the disc anatomy. So, like, right now right the vertebrae anatomy. It's like it has – they stack and so they have the ability to compress and lock down. And in that compression, it doesn't like it won't rotate. So the, they've got the wings on that side of the vertebrae. Your little spinal man back there is good. So under load, it the wings lock down and it does not rotate. So the, when you look at there's lateral flexion, extension, and there's flexion and extension forward and backwards. Those are actually indicated and encouraged, not and encouraged, but they're indicated. So the fact that the spine is curved, so you get your lumbar, your thoracic. Your sacrum and then your cervical they all have a curve implies that there are some under there is some uh, flexion extension capacity that is warranted under load otherwise how would you pick anything off the ground right so the idea of saying that the core is only supposed to keep the spine from moving at all that to me seems flawed just from the proactive like all right go pick the rock off the ground like it's not going to happen right then the question of the lateral thing look at something like a saxon bend so even in this you have the wings our biospine spine can rotate left and right the saxon bend is where the, they literally put a bar, they stand a bar from the Mm. side, put it on the shoulder, and then lean over, named after Arnold Saxon, or Arthur Saxon, I think, I'm I'm from the Saxon, Arthur Saxon, yeah, yeah, so like, okay, that tells me the spine is capable of doing some pretty amazing things left and right, now the question is, if I don't have the, like, and then what am I trying to do, if I'm trying to be explosive, this is something I thought was interesting, is that uh, some research, I forget where it's from, but they're like genetically speaking there's different fascial densities so people from the like, more nordic northern countries like my, my peoples uh they have a little bit stiffer thoracolumbar fascia than someone that's like mm. and maybe this is a diet but like more sunlight more vitamin d less fat in their food they have a little more like pliable fascia so that's we see like the equatorial people that the sprinters all those like you know like they are they have a little bit more fascial differences so on one sense it's like okay the spine has a capacity to do both which is why humans can carry things and go run the sprint i have found that the people that are really stiff and that would have an anti-rotation anti-flexion anti-lateral flexion spine don't run very well and don't move very well but then they can pick heavy stuff up and the people who have a lot of that ability to let the head bounce and like usain bolt as he's got scoliosis actually i don't know but like he can let the body like reverberate and go through them that's a lot more explosive and elastic the question is how much of that is a genetics? How much of that is a chicken and the egg? Meaning like, did they work into that or were they like that? And so then they became that. So there's two questions there. And then how much of that is optimal. So like, as does the Jamaican sprinter need to be able to go pick up a hundred pounds or a thousand pounds. And does the, you know, Eddie hall need to go and be able to sprint. It's like, the question is like do i you know does everyone need to be able to do everything all the time or are we optimized for certain things based off of our genetic predisposition inheritance that maybe we want to lean into then the question is if we only optimize to what we are predisposed to does that put it at put us at risk for not having the other side so the question i think for most people that aren't inherently going after world records or like elite performances is where's the best of both worlds and i would say some form of being able to get under load have some form of Capacity. So you're doing like pallof presses and some type of anti rotational things, which can be as simple as like a shoulder tap, you know, going in a plank position or push up position and doing a shoulder tap. That's an anti rotation movement where you're breathing and bracing doing a dead bug. So the, it could be under load like significant load or just even under like, bracing your diaphragm. That's one side. But then also go throw a ball, go play a sport, go roll on the ground. Cause like his thing is, this is what I've realized uh, from the spinal, like the thing I look at the pelvic floor and the hip rotation capacity and spinal flexion extension is if you can't roll, you're not going to want to fall. And if you don't fall, you're not going to go ride a skateboard or play with your kids or like roll on the ground. That's like, then you get stiff. So I don't think, I don't, I don't perceive it to be a mutually exclusive thing. I think they're both valuable. There are some questions though, whether what is, what truly is, Available to every person, and whether or not it needs to be, and then what's sacrificed when you get to a, because I think we we over sometimes we overvalue. Well, I don't know when it comes to performance, we want to look at like what's the absolute like a, a F one race car. You know, it's like what's the absolute best tire traction for this? What's the best wing? You know, they spend millions of billions of dollars on these cars like for a specific race and have the, everything locked in. It's like, yeah, but that car can't drive. Like you would spin that car out if you tried to pull out of your driveway. So you know, it's like. <laughs> When it comes to the extremes, yes, we need to isolate for those extremes, like a power lifter should not be, you know, thinking about, I don't know, doing a back handspring. But the other side is like, when it comes to everything else is like, that's what I I, like, I want to be able to lift some heavy weights and do a somersault and a cartwheel and sprint really fast, (laughs) you know, and do jujitsu. Like, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, like that all makes sense, and and I agree that if if I'm lifting, I'm gonna want to do more stiff training, right? And if I want to run, I want to uh, do a little less anti rotation training. I was more like the end. I'm looking at it is more um, real life, real life motions. Most people actually aren't lifters. They might go to the gym for a mm-hmm. bit, but they're not looking to be power lifters. What would be more conducive in in regular life? And I, I think you did answer the question. Um, I think you. You answered it very thoroughly, actually.
1: Yeah. I I think the uh, breathing is the biggest thing that they can, most people could do. Like if you learn how to breathe, if you singly learn how to breathe, you'll be able to do 90% of the lifting in your daily life without any issue, just because you can engage your core. Because it's funny, we can talk about both these ends. They're assuming people can actually engage their core. like. If you can't rotate, you know, it's like people, if you can't breathe, you can't create any type of intrinsic stiffness in the muscles and the vertebrae around the spine to let it wiggle and move like the spinal drive would. But if you can't breathe, you also can't create brace and stiffness to be able to load it. So like the most important thing for everybody else, like, hey, learn how to breathe and then everything else will fall into place.
0: Yeah, oh, I'm 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 of that mindset as well. I've I've been doing tons of breath work. We had um, we had a few actually guests who just talked about breathing for like over an hour, and that blew my mind. Even even just um, changing the way that I breathe and and seeing how it affects multiple areas of my performance. That's such a low hanging fruit for, for people, and we just you know, no one no one is talking about it in the mainstream capacity. Whether that's creating the intra abdominal pressure for better core bracing for while you're lifting or whether that's creating a baseline breath for better oxygenation, blood nitrate con- content and carbon dioxide, all that stuff. It's just not talked about. Right. And that's a very low hanging fruit. We're just about out of time. So I want to do a quick speed round with you if that's cool in I'll terms try. of, I, <laughs> I I know that you like to get into, into deep con- concepts. So I'll try to keep them as, as simple as possible in terms of low hanging fruit for people who are listening to this podcast, who want to get stronger feet, what is the number one thing that they can do in their daily lives right away to start building up to a point where they can become a barefoot sprinter?
1: Well, the number one thing would be what we talked about earlier, that hand foot glove and the big toe thumbs up, just getting that position. Um, those are gonna get the toes moving and get that that place. Uh, three would be just walking around barefoot more, getting on textured surfaces, uh, just letting the feet get out of shoes. Four, getting out of restrictive shoes. Um, Five, wearing toe socks. Those are simple, simple, simple things you can start to do if you want to develop the actual resilience and do that, like that's what I got the ready to run program. which we kind of walk you through the rest of that. But those five steps, if you do the hand foot glove, the big toe thumbs up, be barefoot more often. So just on texture services, especially outdoors, like not like on the actual earth, toe socks and then less restrictive shoes. Like that's a whole different category too. Huge.
0: And what are some things that people try to jump ahead too soon and they could hurt themselves if they try to do too much too soon? What, what would you advise people not to do right away? running barefoot. Um, so <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and it, it's not that people, so everybody could go run. Like if I said, hey, I need you to go about 100 meters barefoot, they're going to do that, right? It's the volume. And what happens is the volume is your tissue. So your tissue literally needs to be more resilient. So just like, think of it this way. The first time you go lift a barbell or pick up something heavy, your hands are going to hurt because you don't have calluses on your hands. They get, you lose the calluses, right? They get soft. You little baby's hand. So my, my thought is like, if you've got pan lines in your feet from socks, you get sock lines in your feet, you're not ready to go run barefoot. You need to spend like by the time that you have taken your shoes off enough to be able to get rid of the tan lines, you will have walked around enough to have some to calluses on your feet so that it, don't, it doesn't uh, throw them off. Because it's funny because it's not so much that the tissues aren't ready as much as like people run, their feet get irritated from blistering from like actually rubbing on the ground. So then like it's like when you have a cut, you kind of change your gait and that throws off the, the actual function. So um, there's a lot you can do really quickly, but it takes about three to four months for the fascia to fully reform and remodel. So in that context, is like get yourself some time and then develop some calluses. Get rid of those socked hand lines.
0: Amazing. Uh, what is the one thing that you want people who are listening to know? what What's your What's your message? What do you wish people would would think more? What would you What do you wish people would focus on more? What is your message to the world? Imagine that we have a, a, an audience that is actually the whole world right now. <laughs>
1: It's simple. It's that your body is mil- built for more. And that could be literally your life is built for more in the sense. And that doesn't have to be anything spiritual or metaphysical. It could just simply be like more fun, more opportunity, more playing, more anything. So, like, pain is the single biggest contractor of our existence. So, you want to look at psychological pain, emotional pain, mental pain, physical pain uh existential pain whatever you want to call it like anything that causes pain which i think is something that contracts you from a bigger perspective on the world keeps you from living and so my simple message is that your body is strong and capable with the right, right, right uh, support and training it will adapt and be able to be the vehicle that lets you do whatever which oftentimes gives you more energy more time more focus they get you more money get you more freedom and like that's the thing so i'm a big believer starting with the physical body Starting with the physical joints, adjusting to the feedback, of what your body's telling you is paying it, what your body's telling you is off, using that to develop trust in your capacity to fix that. And then you start to tackle bigger and bigger problems. But it all starts with your body, and your body's built for more, your life's built for more.
0: That's epic. And last question if people want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about the Ready to Run program, they want to just find you online, where, where are the best places for them to do that?
1: So, uh, TikTok and Instagram are going to be some. Probably Instagram is where I'm most active, but um, I've got a YouTube channel as well. But it's uh, the Barefoot Sprinter at the Barefoot Sprinter on TikTok, and Instagram, and then YouTube is just Graham Tuttle. I have more long-form videos there, which I'm going to make more of a focus uh, in the near future. Um, and then broadly speaking, so I've got ready to roll, which is be my. F- we can talk about the fingertips. There's so much you can talk about the fingertips and mm-hmm. the jaw. Like there's a whole process there, and then there's the pelvic floor. Um, but by July, because I've had pain fix programs for those for years, those are the programs I've like built three, four, five versions of them and then ready to run. I really nailed it with like the guided program, the class, the education, the book, all that stuff is one thing. So I've got that for the fingers, the upper body fascial lines from the fingertips to the, the face and the sternum. That's like an upper body fix and the pelvic floor for the hips. So those are all going to be three guided classes. So. No matter what, if you're having pain or dysfunction or let's just say your body's not optimally working, then it's like these are options for you. But reach out to Instagram, The Barefoot Tractor.
0: Epic. Well, Graham, thanks so much for this incredible conversation. I geeked out really, really hard. I even got flustered by how excited about the information (laughs) that you were sharing with us. I just got like so stoked about all the stuff that you were sharing today. Really, really grateful that you signed on. Special thanks to Andrew for hooking this up. I uh, I really appreciate him uh, Help helping make this happen. So thank you, Andrew. If you're listening to this one, Um, this is the be. Art of Move podcast. If you guys are listening on Spotify or iTunes, please leave us a rating or a review. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. If you like this stuff, and if you're listening on No Filter, well, thanks for watching us live, guys. That was super super fun. You can check out our upcoming shows on NoFilter.net. Follow me at the Body Moves on Instagram. Follow Will at the Art of Move on Instagram, and follow Graham at the Barefoot Sprinter. We're all at uh, we all the at the beginning of our handles there. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode.
2: Have a good one, guys.